What if you were able to save the lives of a thousand children a day by eradicating the mosquitoes that carry malaria? Or if scientists could edit genetic embryos in a way that makes the baby immune to HIV or less likely to develop Alzheimer's as an adult? We're closer to those possibilities now than ever before because of a revolutionary gene editing technology called CRISPR, which allows scientists to change sequences of DNA and guarantee that the resulting edited genetic trait is inherited by future generations. It sounds great, so why is it so controversial? Well, we're going to take a look at CRISPR on today's Please Explain with science journalist Jennifer Kahn, a contributing writer for the New York Times magazine. She's also been a regular feature writer for The New Yorker, National Geographic, Wired, and Outside. And I'm pleased to welcome her to our show now. Hi. Hi, good to be here. And we also, during these Please Explain segments, invite our audience to join the conversation. Call us at 212-433-9692. If you have any questions about genetic engineering, the ethics of CRISPR, just give us that call. Or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Jennifer, its full name is CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R dash C-A-S-9. <laughs> That's right. What did the, the letters and numbers stand for? Um, you really want to know? Uh, CRISPR, I believe, is Clustered Randomly um, Interspaced Palindromic Repeats. It's not a lot of help. That's why it's called CRISPR. <laughs> now, I know what a palindrome is in language. The name Otto is a palindrome because you can read it forwards and backwards. Does that apply here as well? It actually does. It, it was part of how they discovered this um, way back in the day. Um, some researchers in Japan actually just found these mysterious kind of genetic sequences that happened, you know, some of which happened to be sort of these palindromes, and they seemed to just happen again and again. Um, and they had no idea what, you know, what it was. They wrote it off as a mystery for years, and it was only, um, you know, comparatively recently that people even figured out what it was. And it was part of a part of a bacterial adaptive immune system, the kind that we have, where it can recognize, you know, once you get the, you know, the measles, you don't get the measles again. Um, so, yeah. And it occurs naturally in nature everywhere or just Japan? <laughs> Not actually in Japan specifically. It, occur, it occurs in um, bacteria, interestingly, a lot. I think 90% of bacteria actually have um, this kind of, you basically have this CRISPR gene, and that's the way that their immune system, um, it'll store a little piece of whatever invading, you know, um, say, you know, disease comes in. They'll store a little piece of its DNA, and so then that's how they recognize it the next time it comes in. So the, it's storing these tiny fragments of virus DNA in compartments? Yeah, basically there's a little, there are these little, you know, kind of spacers between each of the, the sections. So it, it sort of like creates a little box for each um, disease that the, uh, that the bacteria has been exposed to, and then next time it knows to mount an immune response the minute it begins to detect that. So CRISPR is harnessing mechanisms that already exist in bacteria, and you've described it as a word processor for genes. In what way? <laughs> well, it's really interesting because, you know, we've been able to do genetic engineering for about 40 years, but unless you're in the field, no one really knew how incredibly hard it was to do um, it was really labor-intensive. Um, the genes would end up in random locations. You'd end up with a bunch of copies of them. So, you know, if that were our word processor, it would be a disaster every time you tried to, you know, 
cut and paste a word, the word would show up anywhere in the document. You didn't really, you couldn't control it very well. You know, you'd get 50 copies of the word in the document. Um, so it was really hard, and you had to just do a ton of things, you know, almost like a, you know, a million monkeys at a typewriter, until you, you know, kind of could sift out the ones that had worked. Um, and so CRISPR was a huge change. It actually did enable us to be, you know, like a modern word processor. You could literally edit, you know, you could cut out a gene, um, knock out, as they say in science. You could edit down to a single base pair, you know, the little AT or GC that makes up DNA. What's the Cas9 component of CRISPR? How does that work? Yeah, so actually the CRISPR gene um, is what it codes for a protein um, called Cas9 or an enzyme. Uh, and that is what actually attaches to the stretch of DNA um, and then cuts it at a very precise spot. And it's, um, it's sort of coupled with a, what's called a guide RNA that directs the protein to the exact target. It kind of has a, a little address, a little short string of you know, letters corresponding to a particular spot on the gene. And then there's a, a second piece of RNA that allows the you know, Cas9 to kind of bind onto the DNA in order to cut it. That sounds like a really difficult process, but in a TED talk you gave last February, you said any lab can do it, an undergraduate can do it, a talented high schooler with some equipment can do it. What makes you know, the process so simple? Well, so the one of the tricks was that um, uh, it's basically the engineering created by Jennifer Doudna, who was the one at UC Berkeley. She was a researcher with um, a collaborator um, named Emmanuel Charpentier. And together, they actually, in their postdocs, developed, they sort of took what the bacteria, you know, had been doing. You know, they, they took this kind of fundamental, you know, sort of CRISPR gene that the bacteria had evolved. And they figured out how to put this, you know, very efficient little package of the guide RNA and the tracer RNA. And so now, once they've made that package, basically, it just takes an hour, you know, for, I mean, this is a grad student who already has training, you know, but it takes them an hour to learn how to do. You just have to attach this little address that tells it where to go. And then a lot of it's automated, basically. Two weeks ago, the U.S. Patent Office ruled that disputed patents on CRISPR technology belong to the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. And didn't that deal a blow to Jennifer Doudna and the University of California? You know, it, it, it depends who you talk to. Um, and one thing I guess I just want to be clear about is that this is this is basically a money game. It's not, um, I think people worry sometimes that, you know, it depends on who gets the patent. We think of patents as, oh, then they own the technology. You know, maybe none of us can, you know, kind of, no one else can use the technology. And that's not the case. In this case, whether the UC, UC Berkeley gets it or the Broad gets it, um, you know, they're going to license it to whoever, you know, asks. It's just about who gets the licensing fees. Um, and so basically the, the problem was that um, uh, Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley um, created this CRISPR gene editing tool um, and got it to work in bacteria and then applied for a patent. Um, and a little bit later, Feng Zhang, a scientist at the Broad Institute, figured out how to make CRISPR work in human cells. And so the Broad argued that that was a really distinct and difficult step, you know, not just a small extension of Doudna's discovery. Um, and, in fact, the, the Patent Office basically ruled that that was correct. They ruled non-interference on the patent. I would think that they should share the patent, <laughs> considering what you've just said. Well, in effect, they sort of do. It's, it's actually a little frustrating. Um, it's, it's very confusing. So by ruling non-interference, um, UC Berkeley actually is still basically claiming that its patent covers the use of you know, CRISPR, Cas9 in all cells, whether it's, you know, bacteria or what's called eukaryotic, you know, mice and humans and everything else. 
So Jennifer Doudna has been quoted as saying, they have the patent on the green tennis balls, you know, but we have the patent on all tennis balls. Mm. So it's sort of a funny, they, the ruling is kind of a funny overlapping thing. But still, most people think that functionally, you know, when sort of corporations want to get the patent, maybe they'll just pay both of them. You know, but a lot of people sort of think that the Broad is, is now the one who, that's going to benefit the most. I'm speaking with Jennifer Kahn. Uh, we're talking about CRISPR and gene drives on today's Please Explain. This is WMYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. You said that genetic engineering was developed a while back. Um, how long ago, and uh, don't many industries currently rely on it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, like I said, it's been, I think it's been around for about 40 years. Um, and it's, we've already used it for um, you know, many things. We use it in agriculture, famously, because we have genetically modified foods that are, you know, remain somewhat controversial. Um, Is that a similar process? Uh, it, you know, similar in the sense that um, you're changing a gene, but it's, um, it's, different, it's different in a couple ways. Um, one that sort of the definition, for some reason, is a little bit of a, a misnomer, but the definition of a genetically modified organism, the way we normally think about it, this case isn't something that's just had its genes changed. It's something that's had a piece of foreign DNA inserted into it. So you know, they can make a tomato that kind of resists, um, you know, freezing. So it kind of it protects your tomato crop against, you know, freezes by inserting, say, the gene of a flounder or something like that. You know, there's a one particular gene that helps the flounder resist cold temperatures in water. Um, if you put it in a tomato, it helps your tomato resist those cold temperatures. And I think that's the part that um, usually makes people feel ooky. But that doesn't occur with CRISPR. That does not occur with CRISPR. So there's no foreign genes inserted, and it, it actually is going to be an interesting question because there are um, a lot of you know potential agricultural applications. Um, you know, among other things, you could. I mean, some of them are as simple as um, you could make sort of cattle with increased muscle mass by disabling a single gene called MSTN that kind of restricts the amount of muscle growth, um, and so you could create these kind of more lucrative you know, hugely muscled cows. Um, but you could also sort of do very, you know, just very helpful things that aren't, they're, they're sort of less about that kind of financial benefit. Um, there's a gene that triggers um, African swine fever. It kind of triggers this overblown immune reaction um, that's sort of like Ebola for pigs. And if you could actually disable that, it would be incredible for farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. And you've said that researchers are using CRISPR to develop new biofuels, Laundry detergents, water treatment methods. Um, isn't Dannon yogurt using CRISPR to create strains of bacteria that produce a more flavorful yogurt? Although I would think that you just use a better quality milk product. Uh, and then researchers are studying complicated psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia through the use of CRISPR. It's, it's all over the place. It is all over the place. You know, for, for my money, I mean, actually, people have been trying to optimize, interestingly, optimize. Um, you know, bacteria genes for yogurt, because, you know, of course, you have to, that's what you inoculate milk with, is this, you know, bacteria that makes, um, you know, sort of the yogurt become cultured. Um, so people have been optimizing that, you know, forever now. Um, but I will say that the schizophrenia thing, the mental health applications, at least to me, are some of the most interesting, because we've really, with a lot of mental health problems like schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder or even something like anorexia, um, they tend to be controlled by not just a single gene, um, the way that some things like sickle cell anemia are, but by a whole suite. It could be a dozen genes or three dozen genes. 
And in the past, it was basically impossible. It was so labor-intensive and difficult to change even a single gene. And we, in general, couldn't change you know, two at the same time or three. Um, and so now we really have a way that might, it might allow us to really kind of quickly test combinations of genes to begin to understand what's causing these really devastating symptoms. In your TED Talk last February, you discussed the work of a biologist named Ethan Beyer. Is it Beyer? I think so, yeah. How was <laughs> he here? Yeah. How was he able to engineer mosquitoes with an anti-malarial gene? Yeah, there's actually there's a couple approaches to the um, anti-malarial mosquitoes. So um, one is that ideally you could make this is the thing the the preferred route is to make just a gene uh, make a mosquito that can't be infected by malaria, right? So it's possible you could change whatever the the malaria virus is doing. Um, you can figure out you know how it's working, and then you can change a gene to make it so that the mosquito can't be infected by malaria, right? So that would be just great. The other option, that's actually a little trickier. The easier option, um, but that people are a little more uh, leery of, is that you could just get rid of um, the malaria. There's only a, you know, there's a bunch of species of mosquito and only Anopheles and, you know, sort of a limited number, Aedes aegypti and Anopheles, sort of carry these diseases. So you could also just um, do a change that means that um, when they breed, they will pass on um, sterility, right? They will basically... You know, they'll, they'll make, you know, as, as the mosquitoes breed, their offspring will all be sterile. So then, you know, that species would just die out. Well, he engineered two anti-malarial red-eyed mosquitoes. I guess they're, they're naturally anti-malarial. And put them in a box with 30 ordinary white-eyed ones and then let them breed. Yeah. And uh, the results of the experiment violate the rules of Mendelian genetics, I'm told. Yeah, well, now you're getting into something different that's really one of my favorite <laughs> things to talk about, um, and that's what's called a, a gene drive. Um, and so a gene drive um, basically guarantees that a particular trait will get inherited. And you're right that normally biology obeys these Mendelian genetics, um, so it means that the chance that a particular trait will get inherited, you know, it's usually one in two, sometimes it's one in four, um, but with a gene drive, it basically guarantees that that trait will be inter- inherited 100% of the time. Um, and so because of that, as a species breeds, within a handful of generations, um, the trait will be in every individual. What kinds of problems did scientists initially encounter with these gene drives? Um, well, you know, until this was one of the things. Until CRISPR came along, they'd been trying to work on gene drives forever, um, but it wasn't going very well. Uh, and so CRISPR was one of these... You know, it actually was a guy at Harvard, a, a biologist named Kevin Esfeld, who figured it out. Um, and so he thought, uh, wait a minute, CRISPR can be used to cut and paste, you know, a gene, any gene. So what if CRISPR sort of copied and pasted itself, right? So it's sort of like you, 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 you know, you have the, the sort of the cut and paste mechanism, you know, copying the cut and paste mechanism somehow. A perpetual um, motion machine. That's exactly right. So you end up with this kind of perpetual motion machine for gene editing, and that's what enables this to, you know, insist on passing on a trait. Is this copy and paste ability unique to CRISPR? Um, I actually can't even answer that. I don't know if it's unique to it. It's certainly the, the mechanism that, you know, we've stumbled on that have been able to adapt. In what ways does this help guarantee that the desired trait will be passed on, uh, making uh, heterozygous trait homozygous? Yeah, it basically forces, I mean, it gets a little technical, um, but it basically sort of forces 
um, that that trait be selected for. Um, so normally you'd kind of, if you get, if you have, say, a parent who's, you know, AB, you know, and another parent who's AB, and then you can get, you know, the four crosses. You can get AA, you know, AB, BA, and BB, right? But in this case, if you, if you knew you wanted to get, you know, say, only AB, you could make that, you know, that's sort of what the gene drive could make sure, make sure that happens. Could you engineer a wingless mosquito with CRISPR and then assume that it'll dominate the mosquito population? That is an excellent question. Really, no, because ultimately these things still have to breed. So if you use um, the CRISPR gene drive to, uh, you know, try to create some mosquito that has a really just devastating evolutionary disadvantage, you know, that it can't fly or, you know, it's blind or whatever it is, um, then no, the trait is not going to spread to the population. Um, so you're right, there's a limitation there. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll look into some of the potentially negative consequences when we're dealing with this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, take a lot of calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Stay with us for more. And we are back with science writer Jennifer Kahn, who has, uh, who uh, is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, but also a regular contributor to the New Yorker, National Geographic, Wired, Outside, and other publications. Taking your calls at two one two four three three nine six nine two. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Bruce Colburn from the Upper East Side, you're on the air. Hi, thanks, Leonard. Um, so I'd like to ask, uh, considering uh, that this seems to be an inevitable technology that is going to get developed and deployed by somebody first, uh, how uh, important it is, is it for our scientific community in the United States to be that first and take a leadership role rather than abdicating it to a, a, a less responsible country say, uh, uh, with less safety priorities, say, like North Korea? Um, yeah, you know, if you're talking about gene drives, I actually think it is really important. You know, we've sort of seen that with genetically modified foods that, um, you know, it really didn't go over well um, when Monsanto uh, started using it to, you know, to make this kind of terminator gene that would, you know, ideally prevent these, you know, things from spreading from year to year, but then people got very upset about what that might mean for the farmers in Africa. And so, likewise, gene drives are really, they're kind of on a precipice right now, which is that they can be used responsibly. They have the potential to do an enormous amount of good, um, you know, like saving a thousand children a day from dying of malaria or, you know, helping to get rid of invasive species. Um, you know, but if someone uses it first in kind of a haphazard way, it's not even necessarily that they would cause so much damage. Um, but certainly the perception would really probably crush the pursuit of gene drives for, for years afterward. What were the objections to doing something similar to eliminate the Zika virus carrying mosquitoes in Florida? You know, I, I think partly it just, I mean, we, we hadn't, one, we hadn't developed it yet. We're still, we, you know, for every, every new disease like Zika, you'd have to come up with a new fix you know, a new genetic fix for it. So we'd, it would actually have taken a ton of research to do that. Um, and I think it wasn't, you know, it, it sort of given the time frame and stuff, it wasn't a pressing enough threat. I don't know. I assume people are working on that now as a potential option for the future. Amy from Manhattan, you're on the air. 
Hi. Uh, I was wondering, uh, well, one of the guests said that, uh, that, the, uh, that the, the snipping points were very precise, but then that, that uh, when it's pasted in, it, it's random. And I'm wondering why, if, it can, if the snipping can be so precise, why can't the, the, the point where it's inserted be as precise? Because I, I've done some editing on uh, uh, you know, genetic text, and I know, I know that the, um, it can make a difference where the, that sequence goes in. Where the splice occurs. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think I, I must have, it must have been kind of a, a misunderstanding. Um, in the past, we actually did have a lot of trouble of targeting where the new gene would land, um, but that's part of the benefit of CRISPR is that you can target it more precisely. That said, even with CRISPR, in general, it's easier to remove a gene um, than to paste a new one in. Um, there are a lot of technical reasons for that, but there are already people working very hard to get around that. What are the potential negative consequences when we're dealing with something like eliminating malarial mosquitoes? Well, so malarial mosquitoes are one of the ones that's really been the best studied. As, as far as we can tell, we could take them out of the, pop, of the as a species entirely, and, and nothing would change. Um, and this is a funny thing. We tend to worry um, a lot, which I, you know, I, I generally respect. We worry a lot about this idea of what if we take out a mosquito and it starts a chain reaction that causes somehow the whole ecosystem to collapse. And because because frogs right? are going to want to eat the mosquitoes, and there'll be no more mosquitoes, which means the frogs won't have their food. That's the idea. And I think, you know, to some degree, I'm really happy we're, we're worrying about that and thinking about that. Um, you know, but one, you know, these, this particular set of mosquitoes, you know, has been studied ecologically, and they really don't think anything is going to come of it um, if that one set goes away. It's not we're not removing all the mosquitoes on Earth. Um, but the other funny thing is that we've actually been eliminating species for, you know, hundreds of years without even thinking about it. And no one studied what would happen to the ecosystem, you know, if we lost the white rhinoceros or the ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, we just, you know, they ended up dying out because of the stuff we were doing kind of incidentally or hunting them or something like that. And now um, giraffes are an endangered species. Exactly. And, you know, but what's funny, so we're losing all these species, but somehow we don't think of that as, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to the ecosystem? But, the, you know, when we think of, oh, you know, well, actually maybe we'll take out a, a mosquito that, you know, by carrying malaria kills a thousand children a day, suddenly that's something we really have to debate. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting kind of mental, uh, you know, I guess, mindset. Are gene drives more effective in species that reproduce quickly like mosquitoes? Um, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that's actually not very well understood. At least um, gene drives, first they only work in um, sexually reproducing species. So they basically can't be used to engineer viruses or bacteria. Um, which is probably a good thing. Um, and um, also the trait, because it spreads only with each successive generation, um, we can really, you know, the only way to really effectively change a population is if it has a very fast sort of reproductive cycle, like insects or like maybe, you know, some, some small vertebrates like mice or fish or something. Um, but, you know, in elephants or people, um, you know, you'd be waiting, you'd try to make a change, and you'd have to wait, you know, 30 years until someone had a kid, and then slowly that person, you know, would also have a kid, but it just would, it wouldn't spread effectively. Could gene drives cross over into other species? That is a very good question. Um, you know, we don't totally know. There's a phenomenon called gene flow, which is basically kind of a fancy way of saying that neighboring species sometimes interbreed. Um, and if that happens, in theory, it's possible that a gene drive could cross over, you know, like a 
you know, one kind, like an Asian carp could infect some other related kind of carp, um, you know, fish. Uh, but I, I don't think we actually know that much about that yet. And would it be possible to create a suppression gene drive or one that, for example, forced all offspring to be male, which would make reproduction impossible and wipe out an entire species? Well, that is one of the strategies. That would be one of the ideas that you would use, for instance, in Asian carp. You know, they're an invasive species in the Great Lakes, and they've caused a lot of damage. So if you introduce this, you know, gene drive that makes all the descendants be male, if it forces them to be male, um, then, you know, you're going to end up with a bunch of male fish for a while, and then they're all going to die out because there's nothing to breed with. Um, so that's actually part of the goal sometimes. You know, the risk is that if some of those same Asian carp get smuggled out of the Great Lakes, you know, and taken back to Asia, then they could inadvertently spread that same all-male gene drive to the native population, and that could have, obviously, very bad consequences. Chuck from Collingsworth, you're on the air. Hi, guys. Uh, really interesting conversation. Um, I'm curious about um, whether or not you ever consider the, um, the balance in nature regarding how, um, you know, if a species is supposed to be limited by illness and disease, for instance, like humans catching malaria, um, if you change um, or reduce a mosquito population to get rid of the, the disease, is there a moral, moral obligation to, to maintain the balance in the ecosystem and maybe uh, create a way that, uh, you know, the human population doesn't, um, you know, become over, overtake the world. And I'll just listen for your response. Okay, thanks. thanks for calling, Chuck. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's effectively above my pay grade, but I will mm. say, um, you know, ethically, as humans, for years we've been trying to survive. You know, we've been trying to get rid of diseases. You know, we get, we get rid of, you know, we, we try to have our children survive scarlet fever or, um, you know, the plague, whatever it was. Um, we actually want to survive. And in the past, we haven't said when we've cured a disease, when we've developed, a, you know, a vaccine or something like that, we haven't said, oh, well, we should make sure that we make sure to find another way to kill ourselves off. Um, so I think, you know, I think we basically just are trying to do that. But you're right that, you know, there's going to be real questions, of course. You know, if, you, if the population, for instance, in Africa where you know, malaria is endemic, um, you know, suddenly skyrockets because a lot of children aren't dying from it anymore, there may be a moral obligation to sort of begin thinking about, you know, how to improve agriculture there so people can be fed so you don't have people suddenly dying of starvation. In an article published in the New York Times Magazine in November 2015, you wrote, there's a vast difference between using CRISPR to study embryonic development in the lab and using it to create a genetically modified infant who lives and grows to adulthood. But what about re removing the BRCA, uh, breast cancer mutation from a child's genetic code, uh, which would significantly reduce the risk of breast cancer. We're finding a cure for autism by using this technology. Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple interesting different areas. So, um, you know, one is stuff like gene I, therapy. I said BRCA. I should have said BRAC, right? Or Well, yeah, BRCA, however you BRCA. want to pronounce it, sort of the BRCA gene. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the trick is for stuff like that, that's, you know, for you sort of using the embryo um, to kind of make a baby, there's sort of this germline editing it's called. And honestly, the, the one thing we do have already is embryo screening. 
And so probably for quite a long time, that's going to remain the safer and easier way to ensure that your child doesn't inherit one of these things. You just screen the, you know, screen the embryos. Um, and that's because, in general, um, you know, every individual gene usually has multiple functions. So when you change a gene, you might have a variety of, you know, kind of unexpected effects. Um, you know, so for now, probably embryo screening is, is the safer way. But, you know, down the road, um, who knows? We, there may be, it may be a way to confer, you know, disease resistance either by removing, you know, BRCA or making a child immune to um, HIV or, as you said, less, less vulnerable to Alzheimer's. Well, the, the screening has led some people to have abortions as a result of the, the discovery that the embryo has Down syndrome or some other major problem, a heart condition or whatever, uh, and there are many people who are opposed to abortion. Have the people, the anti-abortion people, uh, said anything about this new technology and what impact it might have, whether they see it as acceptable? Yeah, that's a very good question. I actually don't know um, what the feeling is or if there's even a united front on that. That would be a good, a good question to find out. Okay, well, there's still a lot of, of – I suspect that they're not even aware of it right now. Uh, David from Hopewell, New Jersey, you're on the air. Yes, I was just wondering, uh, as far as it gets to with legalities, especially in the U.S., uh, wouldn't someone just go ahead and do it in a different country? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, if you were messing with human genes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that's a good question. There's, um, uh, there's certainly a lot of international, you know, sort of pressure, and, you know, most countries actually do want to be well-regarded. Um, you know, so China at one point caught a bit of flack for um, using CRISPR on human embryos, not to carry a baby to term or anything like that, but just using them on, a, on human embryos, um, and it was considered kind of premature. Um, you know, but I think in general, um, you know, Chinese researchers do actually want to be considered, um, you know, sort of legitimate players at the scientific table. Um, and so most countries sort of have a self-regulation around that. But you're, you know, you're right. There's, if there's really a renegade country, um, you know, who knows what, what would be tried. But I will say that you know, things like um, you know, really editing an embryo that's viable and could come to term is very hard. Actually, we still can't you know, do that very well, um, even using CRISPR. How many of the scientists you've spoken with express concerns about CRISPR gene drives? About gene drives specifically, um, you know, everyone, everyone wants to take it, you know, sort of slowly um, be sensible about this. Among other things, you know, scientists have been working on safeguards, like a reversal drive, so that if you decided, oh, no, we don't like what the gene drive is doing, you can send out a reversal drive and undo the effect. Um, so there's all kinds of the, stuff that people are working on. Um, a listener asked us about the using epigenetics to undo any edits. Um. I actually don't know what, what that would mean, honestly. No. <laughs> um, Too bad. I, he yeah. wrote it in. He didn't, he's not on the line. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. If, if there were more detail, I might be able to understand what he's trying to ask there. Arthur um, from – okay, continue what you were saying. Sorry. Oh, no, you can go ahead. We can take the next call. Arthur from Asbury Park, New Jersey. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, very interesting discussion. I wondered if your uh, guests had any comments on Stephen Hawking's concerns about uh, changing gene uh, endowment and that editing out the creative uh, genes that lead to great scientific advantage. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, so, so, well, I guess 
one one point is that we certainly don't we haven't it's not like we have yet identified a gene you know for creativity or um, you know anything but you know, but I think there's always been this concern you know if we get rid of schizophrenia um, you know or the, a gene that's related to schizophrenia what if that gene also leads to a kind of quicksilver mentality that leads to a lot of you know really radical innovation or something like that um, and if it ever comes to that point that certainly it would be a concern. I think, you know, there's also groups that um, maybe oppose the idea, you know, sort of the deaf community might think, you know, already oppose cochlear implants. And if you think, gosh, you could screen to not have your child be deaf, would you choose that? Would deafness just vanish? And so there's actually kind of questions of identity. There are people who might argue that, you know, we're actually impoverishing humanity by taking away all these differences. Um, uh, and again, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that would cut down on diversity in the population. Uh, Jennifer Kahn's uh, been our guest on today's Please Explain. Uh, she's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, also writes regularly for the New Yorker, National Geographic, Wired, Outside, and other publications. Thank you so much for talking with us on today's Please Explain. Thanks very much, Leonard.